Hello and welcome to this podcast brought to you by Sing Ireland in association with the City of Derry International Choir Festival. I'm Dermot O'Callaghan, CEO of Sing Ireland, and today's podcast will bring you interesting discussion um, around group singing and choral activity during the pandemic, uh, be that online, like much of the activity during the City of Derry International Choir Festival, um, or face-to-face when choirs can undertake safe singing in acknowledgement of public health guidance and taking risk mitigation measures, but also then a focus on what online activity looks like during the pandemic. Um, We'll also celebrate and discuss uh, music and singing for well-being and for health. And uh, I'm delighted that we're going to be joined today by three contributors, Martin Ashley of the Association of British Choral Directors, um, Alva Kenny of Mary Immaculate College, and Sophie Lee, a Music for Health uh, researcher and practitioner. So thank you for joining us. And we'll now move to our first interview. So Martin Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Martin is the Editor-in-Chief of Research with the Association of British Choral Directors and a trustee for many years with the ABCD and indeed uh, an academic who has a really great insight into where the international research is in relation to group singing and choirs activity during the pandemic. Uh, Martin, just to speak to that, I wonder, could you maybe give us your impression of where things stand as of today with with uh, group singing. Yes, of course. And it's good to be with you again. And <laughs> thanks for inviting me. Where do things stand? Well, in a constant state of flux would be one answer to that. A degree of confusion would be another. However, I think we can say fairly safely that we have reached a consensus of what all the mitigations are that need to be done if you want to sing. And most people are fairly clear about them. And they know that it's a risk. They know they have to do a risk assessment. They know what should be in their risk assessment. I think perhaps the most controversial area still is the wearing of masks and there are there's still a lot of debate going on about whether you have to wear them all the time or just wear them when you're moving about the room but not when you're singing. A lot of discussion on social media about that but really the, the, the science is you've got to wear them. The very latest piece of work I've engaged with actually on that score is some research in Germany um, with some uh, boy and girl singers uh, on how many aerosols children produce. And again, wear masks. <laughs> there's, there's no getting away from it. So that's a sort of summary, I think, of, uh, of where we are. The work's been done, and I don't see a huge advance in knowledge at the moment about the mitigations for singing. Uh, you know, we know what we need to do. A lot of the uncertainty is with the predictable resurgence in infections across populations that was predicted for the winter. Well, it's happening already. It's only early autumn and things are looking pretty dicey here in the UK. 
Uh, I think it was Czechoslovakia also are in deep trouble, having been one of the most successful European countries. There has just been another super spreader event in Japan. Uh, and so it goes on. But we do know more about what's happening and we can sort of take a realistic perspective on it. Where my own work has gone is with what I'm calling incommensurability. Now, the simplest way of looking at this is to say children are back at school because it has been determined from various sources, from government, you know, to various scientific papers, that the risks to children uh, not going back to school are outweighed. Oh, have I got this the right way around? It's worse for them. Yes. <laughs> it's worse yes. for them not to go back than to go mm. back. And, of course, that's another thing we know a lot about, that um, children and students uh, in universities, massive disruption to their education, all sorts of real sort of risk factors that are nothing to do with catching the virus. And the other thing that we know is that school-age children are a very low-risk category, although they can pass it on. University students are higher risk category, but still much lower than some of the older um, adults that sing in, in choirs. So the natural question is, and the one I'm trying to answer in my current research, is how do we balance these incompatible risks? Now, I could carry on talking about that, or you could ask me... Um, I, I might come back to something you've said, if that's okay, and maybe yeah. we'll draw out mm. to that. But just in relation to uh, masks, actually, I think there were two most prevalent cases of, of choir infections over the last couple of weeks, months, late late last month into this month. Uh, one in uh, Barcelona, just outside Barcelona, and another uh, in France more recently. And um, actually, I think what's borne out through those examples is that they weren't wearing masks all of the time. So I think in the French example, they were wearing a mask as they traveled to and from, but not during. And then in the um, in the example in Spain, they were wearing masks inconsistently through the rehearsal. So I think um, that's borne out in when choirs are taking those risk mitigations and wearing the mask all the time. It actually really does work. So uh, I just wanted to echo that and say it again and give the real world example but actually the vast majority of choirs who have sung have not uh, contracted the virus so you are talking about degrees of risk and comparability across activities oh that's undoubtedly true i think the important thing to say it's do everything there are mm. all sorts of mitigations which people are familiar with i mean reducing the number of singers increasing the size of the rehearsal room, the ventilation, avoiding crowds, not talking to each other. It, no single one of those is going to make you safe. And what I can't say, and nobody could say, is if the Spanish choir had worn masks all the time, that wouldn't have 100% guaranteed it wouldn't have happened. And 
the, the people are very clear about this are Spahn and Richter from, is it from Munich they're from? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but they have produced a comprehensive analysis of all of this and they're absolutely clear. You've got to do it all. You can't pick and choose the mitigations that you like. And no single mitigation is going to make you safe. And isn't that human nature, I guess? We want to sort of do as much as we can, but over time you get fatigued from that, I guess, as well. And people do maybe some, but not all. So it's really important that we do all of the things. And actually, just to mention, Sing Ireland spoke to Martin during the summer, very kindly he gave of his time. And uh, resulting from one of those conversations, we did a further session on risk mitigation and risk assessment. And it's been really useful for setting out all of those items you should look at with Martin's uh, input. It's been great just to have that as something that the sector is using. You can find that, by the way, on our website at singireland.ie. But I I think it's interesting with young people, um, as you were saying, just to draw out that second point, and, and that ties a little bit to part of the topic of this podcast, which is singing for and around well-being and for your health and and what you've said about young people and the effect on their uh, education and their lives if they can't be in the school environments holds true I think for the loss to singing and I suppose that correlates to people throughout their lives and um, I just wonder do you have an impression about what the loss to the singing community is and I suppose that's where the real question of how much risk we're willing to take as a as a world choral community lies yeah i do have an impression i i don't yet have fully written up analyzed data but i've got data coming in Uh, and what it's saying is very clearly is that the risk is a big one on the one hand you've got the i almost say known risks of infection we're now dealing with well what are the risks of losing singers singers regressing in their skills singers becoming psychologically you know downbeat um these are real risks and they differ according to the age group and the level of commitment people have to their choirs but the latest data i had coming in was really quite worrying people saying our oh, people are not engaging with my zoom rehearsals people are, are leaving the choir um, and then, you know, my own field, particularly with, with boys and singing, surprise, surprise, um, boys are dropping out more rapidly than girls are. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. But all, all of these things, risks and the, the difficulty, the academic difficulty is you can measure risk of infection. You can measure risk of people leaving choirs and not coming back but what you measure them in are different units different metrics so you can't put them in a computer and directly compare them so at the end of the day it comes down to human judgment value judgment now because the choir is very important to me I might be more inclined to take a personal risk than somebody for whom it's only one of a number of things and they're not that committed to it. Uh, Now, that's a huge area, you know, we need to be engaging with. 
I think that's right. And it's interesting. And I'd imagine a lot of people who may be listening to this uh, podcast would would see very clearly those the, the loss that's there because people can't sing in a group. I think that the really interesting question and we're I know you're not and we're not for a, uh, at Sing Ireland for a minute suggesting that people do anything unsafe which is why we're saying do everything as you've mm. said Martin mm. but but then there is a broader question as we you know in in the the plans that are being released by governments the plan for living with the virus with uh, COVID-19 and where risks are being taken across society and comparative risk across activities is being considered that's where this territory is I think in terms of how much risk is each person how much risk is each group willing to take and that's got to be an individual decision and it's got to be in line with public health so do everything and after that then you are reducing risk but you can't eliminate it that's absolutely true and in in western societies you know that greater and lesser degrees libertarian in outlook it boils down to personal judgments and again, you know, the evidence is very, very clear that young people are saying, well, we're low risk. Uh, we know that we'll take the risk. Older people are saying we know that we're a vulnerable category. Our judgment is that we won't take the risk. And I suppose, you know, choir leaders have got to look at the demographics of their choir and say, you know, how are people going to judge whether they come? Uh, but again, in the UK, it's very clear at the moment, a lot of choirs haven't restarted. And the actual survey data that um, I, I did a quite a big survey amongst ABCD members recently, and the biggest non-infection risk that came through that survey is the risk to venues. People are losing their venues, um, their venues are unwilling to open up to choirs because there is misinformation uh, amongst yes. venue proprietors about, you know, the, the relative risks of the various things that go on in the halls they rent out. And that's another risk, misinformation about choirs and, and singing. Uh, and again, we found that in schools. The head teachers who are very, very busy and got a huge responsibility at the moment, nobody's blaming them, but they're making judgments about singing that are based upon scientific stuff that's three months out of date. And that's another risk. It just goes on and on. Absolutely. And it's it's really, uh, you know, I really feel for the world choir community, for conductors of choirs whose livelihoods depend on it. You know, it's not just that there's an, another enormous risk for the viability of people's careers and how they can sustain themselves through a period like this. Um, so, yeah, I think there's so much to consider. So, Martin, it, looking to the future, I suppose this is um, a very uh, tricky question to ask. But in terms of the likelihood of, and, and I know this is very tricky to tell, but the likelihood of a vaccine coming or some maybe antiviral medication and how that will affect a return to singing. Have you an impression of what that might look like? Uh, yes and no. There is optimistic talk, isn't there, about a vaccine being available. And 
there are very, I don't know, competing is the right word, but many different laboratories and groups working on different types of vaccine. And certainly the UK government has taken out rights on several of them to hedge its bets. But there is no complete certainty that any of them are going to work. And even if they do, you've then got the problem of rolling them out and making them available to everybody and dealing with the information and misinformation that's going to circulate about that. I mean, there will be a backlash of people refusing to be vaccinated. There'll be conspiracy theories. Now, all of these things are risks. So I, I can't be more optimistic than that, really. I think we've got to learn to live with the risk and, you know, the occasional super spreader event, well, we just hope there aren't any more and people have got to be constantly vigilant and constantly careful. But the alternative is no singing at all. This is the thing. And I think that it's really something I, you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's something we're going to have to live with in one way or another, certainly for months, if not some years. And we need to just take stock and take take a, a really considered view of what risks we're going to take and making sure that people can sing safely over the longer term and hopefully with some uh, breakthroughs uh, that will help to alleviate the situation in terms of vaccine and, and medications. Yeah, I mean, if I can throw a positive in, in the UK now, we've got all sorts of choirs that are singing socially distanced um, and that there is a new normal that you don't all cram together in rows that you spread out across the you know the space you've got and and people are doing that and doing it quite successfully so you know it is possible to carry on and i think it's essential that we do and i was about to end but actually you've just fired my imagination on one other thing which was um i know for instance in uh, scandinavia they they got back singing in with social distancing and so on quite early and i wondered had you heard anything on i haven't heard of any super spreading events uh, oh, and dear. i wonder if i wonder if that's if that's just that we haven't heard about them i'm yet, afraid or how you were. haven't heard about them there was one in norway interestingly it was a a choir of young people and they were not careful about distancing in the breaks of the rehearsal it was perfectly simple they did not follow all the mitigations very carefully and the result was one person who was uh, an asymptomatic carrier spread it to 75% of the choir so even in Norway it can and will happen if you don't follow every mitigation carefully. But if you do, you you're going to your chances of being safe. I I would take the risk. I would sing in a choir that I was confident was taking every mitigation carefully. And there you go. Thank you so much. I could speak to you about this all day, Martin, uh, no doubt, but uh, I think I'll draw to a close just now and thank you so much for your time. And um, I hope everything goes well for you and your research over the coming months. Thanks so much. Lovely. Thank you.
Sing Ireland has seen throughout this pandemic the real perseverance and real inventiveness of singing groups and choirs uh, throughout Ireland who have been looking at ways that they can come together uh, either online or if they can do so safely f- uh, face-to-face. We have regularly had online Zoom sessions with um, hundreds of people uh, who've been contributing and showing their passion and their uh, wish to sing together once more or to sing together online um, if that's what we must do at the moment. We are really um, heartened by the fact that so many people are so passionately supportive of one another and of the choral sector in Ireland. And um, I think it's also worth saying that the City of Derry International Choir Festival have been a really important part of that mix as they take a really interesting, a really engaged and really exciting programme online um, that has been demonstrated throughout this week. Uh, So our appreciation to the festival and uh, it's our great pleasure to be a part of this. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Sophie Lee is a music and health researcher and practitioner and uh, really delighted that she can be with us to share her knowledge and expertise in this area. Um, Sophie, just getting to um, to your work, um, I wondered, have you seen the soothing and life enhancing capabilities of singing in that work? Yeah, I have. Um, So as part of my PhD research, I explored how a community-based group singing intervention impacted the well-being of people with early stage dementia and their family carers. And we used a variety of physiological and psychological measures to capture this, including a visual analogue scale for measuring perceived stress. And so participants completed the scale before and after the group singing sessions, and we found that perceived stress was significantly lower after the singing sessions. And I also explored this question qualitatively and conducted interviews with some of the participants about their experiences of the singing intervention. So our analysis revealed four subordinate themes, social connection, happiness and rejuvenation, reconnection with the self and supporting the carer cared for relationship, providing evidence of multidimensional enhancement of well-being. And then as a practitioner, I've also observed the soothing capabilities of singing through my role as musician in residence in Tally University Hospital, where I deliver the music programme Soothing Sounds in the Children's Hospital. So this programme run by the National Centre for Arts and Health involves conducting interactive bedside music sessions with inpatients on Maple Ward, Oak Ward and the CHI High Dependency Unit. And it aims to soothe and calm patients, reduce stress for family members, enhance feelings of well-being for patients, family members and staff, and increase social interaction and positive stimulation for patients. Fantastic. So I, it's really interesting to hear, I suppose, that um, qualitative uh, response. And we know at Sing Ireland and through just talking to people involved in choirs and involved in singing, that they, they obviously get those benefits that you described. Interesting to also have that quantitative basis for it. And I know so much research internationally is bearing those same facts out. A question I had just to, you mentioned the different areas you've been working in and just across age groups. I wondered, did you see that that might differ across age groups or is it a similar sort of response? Yeah, so international research evidence on the potential benefits of singing for health and well-being is 
expanding rapidly, as you're saying. And a scoping review by Fancord and Finn, published by the World Health Organization last year, identified a major role for the arts in the prevention of ill health, promotion of health and management and treatment of illness across the lifespan. And research to date indicates many physical, cognitive and social benefits of group singing. And common ground in how it affects people of different age groups can be observed. For example, participants in a study conducted by Moss O'Donoghue and Lynch at the University of Limerick on the effects of singing in a choir spanned wide age ranges of uh, from like 18 to 90 and reported an overwhelming positive response in terms of physical and um, psychological benefits, social benefits, emotional benefits and spiritual benefits. So this suggests that people of all ages find singing to be a beneficial activity for their health and well-being. And similarly, working in TUH, I've, I've observed the ability of singing to modulate the moods of toddlers, children, adults and older adults alike. However, I don't think we're at a point quite yet where the effects of singing can be generalised. So a lot of research into group singing, for example, is focused on specific clinical populations and has explored its impact on elements pertinent to that condition. So such as lung function for people living with cystic fibrosis or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease um, or cognitive function for people living with dementia or immune system activity in cancer patients. And recurring limitations of studies in this area include the heterogeneity of methodological designs, which impedes the synthesis and results um, of different studies, issues with methodological rigor and small sample sizes. So I think considerable further research which addresses these limitations is warranted before we can kind of generalize the wide ranging benefits observed on studies on group singing. Yeah, fair enough. I can imagine the research is ongoing. And yes, there's lots of uh, research that is in train and has already been done to date. It's, it's, it's really becoming a large area. I think singing for well-being and as a sort of almost prescriptive item is is also coming to the fore as something that uh, can be looked at in a suite of uh, suite of ways that you can help to improve the the well-being of a patient um would would you agree with that yeah definitely and i think that whole world of social prescribing which is kind of now taking off in the uk is a really really interesting thing and it'll be um, nice to hopefully see that grow um, in an Irish context as well. Absolutely. And I, I suppose just in a, I'm th thinking now as in your role as a practitioner, uh, musician in residence at uh, Tally University Hospital in Dublin, I, I suppose just from your own reaction, not, not even from a, you know, data driven side, what has been the impact or what has been the difference that you've seen to a, a, a patient's health from singing with them? Yeah, sure. So I suppose with the nature of that project in the children's hospital, I'm going around to a variety of different bedsides um, each Friday morning. And it's generally going to be uh, new families, new patients um, as a sort of the, the nature of that hospital setting. So uh, it might not be that I've had a long time to establish a relationship before, so do I suppose have to read the room as I'm in there. And so I wouldn't have a huge knowledge over a long period of time, but certainly when I'm in the room itself, it's that modulation of mood, the enhancing the level of engagement and communication has been really evident. 
also the whole experience can be quite cathartic for parents so I remember being in with with a toddler who'd been quite unwell who through the singing you know was just full of laughter engaging singing away with me and um the mum burst into tears just you know seeing her her baby so well after after I suppose what had been quite a stressful situation so I guess music can can transform a space in that way and can yeah provide that opportunity for emotional release provide the opportunity as well for patients that have been cooped up in their room to be noisy and move around and yeah. uh, you know get to have that fun in a, a constructive way and uh, and let out you know their feelings of frustration or their feelings of stress or worry and we actually we did an evaluation on the study back in 2018 which is up on artsandhealth.ie so that sort of has a bit of feedback from different staff members um patients themselves so the kids and parents as well um about uh their experience of of the project Brilliant. Thank you. And um, just one final question I wanted to maybe ask about your experience. Uh, we touched in, in the pre-interview, Sophie, on the fact that um, during COVID times, obviously, there, there's a big challenge to working online in these kind of contexts. And I just wondered um, what your own I suppose what your own experience has been over the past months, I'd imagine it's been been not as active as obviously before that point. No, I mean, I, I think COVID has had, yeah, quite a big impact across the, the musical world. And we definitely see that in arts and health. What's been brilliant to observe as a member of the National Centre for Arts and Health team is the different ways that the people have adapted to to address this so I know there there's been provision of different you know art packs and things for patients music therapist Clara Monaghan has put up different videos around singing and relaxing at home that people can engage with from wherever they are in terms of my research which was uh examining the impact of singing on the well-being of people with early stage dementia and their family carers. I've now added a, a new piece to that study, which is looking at the impact of um, COVID on dementia-inclusive singing interventions. So um, I'm currently talking to a number of different musical directors who are, you know, running different different groups. And so I suppose it's given the opportunity to to explore this whole world of maybe integrating technology, moving these groups online while it's not safe to meet in person and and how everyone's adapting to that and finding that. So I'll uh, be able to tell you a bit more about that in the in the coming months um, as I analyse that data. Brilliant. I suppose, uh, like yourself, well, Sing Ireland's work has been impacted in the same way and there's been lots of online working, but, and also actually the, of course, the City of Derry International Choir Festival is entirely online this year. So um, I'm not for a minute suggesting that this is the way of the future, but there are some benefits coming from that and the way that we work with technology will be brought forward to a post-COVID world, hopefully uh, in a really, in a really positive way. So look, uh, Sophie, I just wanted to thank you for your time and applaud all of the fantastic work you're doing um, through your research and through your practice. And again, to thank you for for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me.
And next, I'll be joined by Dr. Alva Kenny of Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. Um, Alva's research interests are around communities of musical practice. And most recently, Sing Ireland has been involved in a project with Alva and Mary Immaculate College um, based in direct provision. So music and asylum seeking context uh, a project called Song Seeking. Um, as well as that, Alva is very engaged in music education practices in the informal and formal um, contexts and on creativity in the arts and how music has a social impact. Alva, we'll get right to it. In your work, um, have you found that singing has positively impacted people's lives and how has it enhanced their health and well-being? Well, of course, the answer is a resounding yes. It, it has affected people's lives. Um, in my work now over over um, over a decade now, I've I've looked at singing amongst young children, amongst teenagers, amongst young adults in third level um, institutions, but also adults in intergenerational groups. And what I found again and again is that it does improve the quality of life. That's a very important one. Um, and it does this, of course, in a number of ways. My particular interest is looking at collective singing or group singing. And there's an incredible power that comes when, when people join forces to create a communal sound. Um, what I found amongst various research studies is that it can create a sense of community, that is quite distinctive to that community. It has its own identity. No matter what that singing group looks like or, or sounds like, each is quite distinctive and they develop their own particular practices around their singing. So that in itself is hugely important for people to feel connected to something that, that goes beyond the individual. Um, and particularly, actually, in, in, in a, a youth choir I looked at, they really created another family in itself. This, this in the language, even they used at interview, they kept using this language of, oh, about the choir director, oh, she's like our mammy. <laughs> you know, this came up again and again. And, and, and indeed there was, you know, you could see it in the, in the breaks. Um, you know, they talked about everything from their leaving certificate to junior certificate to where they were going for coffee <laughs> to, you know, where they were going out that night. So it was part and parcel of their social life as well as their musical life. And again, that has been a particular research interest of mine as looking at the musical in the social, the social in the musical. And again, looking at how do these groups create a sense of belonging? How do they create a community of musical practice? And if they achieve that, and not all do, I think it's important to say that, singing has enormous potential to bring people together and create community of course, there's always a flip side. Anywhere you have inclusion, you often have exclusion. So um, it's particularly important to say just because you sing together doesn't automatically mean everyone feels a sense of belonging. That has to be worked on. Um, that has to be built up through relationships. It has to be built up over time. And where that happens, where people do gain that sense of, as I said, family or community, um, it really is enormously powerful and it, it does impact on people's mental health and actually their physical health as well. There's something um, very innate and embodied about singing. So when people are standing together in a space, 
there's something again very powerful about how how the sound resonates in that room, how people feel the singing, how they hear the singing. It, it happens both inside the body but also outside the body. Um, so again, even the physical benefits of that, um, really, again, it is is quite enormous. And again, there's a huge amount of research at this stage to back that up. So it's it's psychological, it's emotional, but it's also physical. Absolutely. I'm really interested in what you were saying around the musical achievement versus the social side of it and how they're interconnected, you know, uh, speaking of inclusion and, and exclusion and how the, the inclusive nature is not guaranteed. Um, I wonder what sort of qualities or what conditions need to be in place, would you think, for for that positive benefit to to, to come into effect? Yeah, so that, it, that this is where it becomes very interesting, um, because yeah. again, even myself, even outside of my own research and my own practice, I've sung in choirs since I was a small child. I've sung in choirs where I've felt an enormous sense of community and I've sung in choirs where I felt marginalised. So um, it's all in the mix. And I think it's about people finding the right group of people to sing with. And we see that. We see that in the types of groups that come together. We've seen, um, you know, LGBT groups who, who, who decide to create singing groups. We've seen it amongst um, diversity choirs in various guises. We've seen it in how choirs sometimes group according to age. So people look for commonality. Um, they look for a shared vision. So you'll have choirs who really want to do tough competitions. They want to go and travel the world. And then you'll have choirs who just want this to be their Tuesday night escape. Maybe, you know, they have stressful work lives, they're studying hard, and it really is a bit of fun on a Tuesday evening. And again, so it depends on what is the vision of that community? Because that has to match for people. So that's an important one is for the, the community of singers to find their shared vision. If they can find that, that will go an enormous, enormous way and will cause actually, um, well, it will avoid a lot of conflict and a lot uh, of grumbling into the future if people can find that shared vision from the beginning. And indeed, it doesn't mean that that's set in stone. Choirs change and morph and that will depend on the people within it. People change and dynamics change. But again, it has to be flexible to respond to those changes. So that's also important. Another um, important characteristic is that people feel they have a voice, not just as a singer, but have a voice in choices. So again, in choirs and groups of singers, any type of group of singers, where people feel they have input into, say, the repertoire, where they have input into, say, the venues where they might sing. Again, people get to feel a sense of agency through that and feel they belong. What they have to say and sing is important. Um, and again, I think choirs where they create social interaction, they create moments of social interaction, hugely important. Again, I've, I've been there myself. I've been in choirs where I literally just go, I'm handed the music, I sing and I leave and I may not talk to anyone within that space. Those are the choirs I did not feel a sense of community. The choirs where I had breaks, where we had trips away, uh, where we had time and space to socially interact, to build relationships, that hugely important for creating what, again, what I term as communities of musical practice, 
creating the social conditions within the musical spaces. Really important. I think that's absolutely true because no matter what sort of a choir and what level of artistic achievement they're at, actually that achievement is just heightened if it's really a part of their life, if it really has um, a social aspect, if it's something that they care deeply about as well as the artistic achievement side of things being uh, an important factor. And I think that's true of people no matter where they're coming to with group singing, if they're a very high functioning, high at, uh, achieving musician, or again, um, somebody who's coming at it uh, from the social side, looking for that social outlet. There's a commonality, as you mentioned, Alva, a commonality to that quality of the work. If there is a strong social aspect and connection to their lives, then that makes the work all the more successful. Um, and, yeah, and, and I'm thinking of... Yeah. yeah, I think it's important to say, though, it doesn't have to be polarised. So I don't think it has to be, you know, that, that one singing group are high achievers and never speak to each other and, and, and just win every competition there is and, and, and do recordings, etc. And then the others are simply all about the fun. I think there's a balance to be struck. But again, that comes back to what the group of people want and what the choral facilitator or leader wants. What is the vision for this choir? Um, and again, I think sometimes there can be a mismatch there between what the group of singers want and perhaps what the choral leadership <laughs> want. So sometimes there needs to be a negotiation of that to find the right balance or what is, again, coming back to what does this group of singers want to do? What do you want to achieve? And if that is, I just want to achieve a stress release on a Friday night, that's absolutely fine. But people need to be aware of that and find a commonality in that vision. Absolutely. And it's something actually at Sing Ireland we talk about quite a bit is we don't mind what the structure looks like for a singing group, but we would encourage them to think about their vision, a shared vision. You know, you can get into sort of corporate speak around uh, mission, vision, all that kind of thing. And in a way that could be helpful. But actually what's really important is that shared understanding of what the group is trying to achieve together. And I think actually if any group of people was sort of well place to do that kind of work singing groups are especially if they've experienced it and been doing it for some time because they they they're working in shared purpose i might just move on if that's okay alva to uh, a different question which is um sing ireland and uh, mary immaculate college and yourself uh, along with the irish refugee council um have been heavily involved in a project sponsored and funded by the creative ireland uh, program uh, called song seeking which uh, saw the uh, establishment of choirs in direct provision centers around the country and um i suppose i wanted to ask what you felt the most successful aspects of that project were and, and what was the impact of that work? Yeah, so the Song Seeking Project um, was a highly ambitious project in all sorts of ways because what we did was we created singing groups across six different direct provision centres. So again, coming back to this idea of trying to create spaces for creating a sense of community, uh, spaces where for creativity to flourish, where people could feel a sense of agency and again, a sense of belonging, particularly amongst people who are very, very marginalised um, and also people who are living amongst very diverse communities in these kind of 
communal temporary living arrangements, which are very unique spaces in themselves. So really looking to um, how can we get people to connect across race, across religion, across different languages, um, across different cultures, across different socioeconomic backgrounds. And again, looking for can singing do that? Can it create a sense of belonging and community within direct provision centres? And um, I'm glad to say it did. Uh, But of course, it did in different ways. So different, again, the groups of people make the community and they make each community distinctive. So each different direct provision centre had different types of singing communities. And that was hugely organic and again, depended on relationships being built up over time. But not only this, probably um, what I'm most proud of in the Song Seeking Project, what when we had what we called local sing-in events. So that was where we tried to link people living in the surrounding communities around the direct provision centres who would come in to the direct provision centres to sing with the singers inside the direct provision centre. So this idea of linking inside and outside. Um, and again, the, the, the residents in the direct provision centres acting as hosts. And they were enormously successful. We had huge interest from local communities to connect through singing to try and meet with people they otherwise would never get a chance to meet, to actually step inside a direct provision centre that often they did not know about or was very hidden within their society, within their communities. Um, Those events are enormously successful. And what has given us great heart in that project is there's clearly an appetite for more. There's an appetite for more types of local events like that to connect communities through collective singing. Absolutely. And how much do you think that the the universal language of singing, of song, helped to provide greater access to a project like that? Yeah, it, singing is, is an incredibly innate, um, it's spontaneous. We do it from the time we're born, when we babble. So everyone can do it. So as regards access, it's such an easy tool and mechanism to get people to create one common sound in a very, very short space of time. So it meant that, um, again, that notion of every voice is distinctive on its own, but when we come together, you can create something larger than yourself. You can create a much, much bigger sound than you could than if you sing on your own. And again, that transcended language because it's simply singing. We can sing, you know, again, (laughs) relating back to my own practice, you know, I've sung in Russian, German, (laughs) um, all sorts of languages that I can't speak, but I can sing in them. I can create sounds. Um, And it's just, again, just mixing up syllables and vowels, isn't it, at the end of the day? So it, it did create a means for people to connect, whereas it can be very, very difficult to connect in other ways. And it creates a sense of relationship, even if, even if it's temporary, even if it's just for that hour, people can feel a sense of togetherness simply through sound. Absolutely. And I think that speaks so much to 
to the work you've done over many years, Alva, in communities of musical practice. And I suppose most recently in the Song Seeking Project, how a marginalised group, and you know, that isn't just for those in direct provision, that's a marginalised group right across society. Um, You know, young people who are marginalised in some socioeconomic way, or others who are marginalised by social exclusion or or some other reason. And I think... um, the core of the community of musical practice as something as a force for change and positive impact. Um, I think that can be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. I mean, I think the Song Seeking Project, while the context was within direct provision centres and, and indeed within the asylum seeking system more broadly, of course, what we're really talking about here is trying to create a sense of community and belonging through singing amongst people who have very little agency. Um, who don't have um, a huge repertoire to call on to express themselves, who are often not listened to. I mean, I think that's where song seeking becomes. There's another layer of thinking behind it and, and another lens in thinking about how people can find voice and amplify voice. And of course, that's not just about the singing, is it? It's about making a political statement. We are here, we are singing, we have something to say and we want to be heard. Absolutely, and what a wonderful note to end on. Alva, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.